it's another day. It's another episode with rabbit hole stories. We have to come up with like new intros, Ian. <laughs> yeah, another day at rabbit hole stories. Exactly. Another rabbit hole uh, explored. <laughs> another <laughs> hole we go down to. Now it's getting weird. Um, yeah. But no, we had we had Alex on, who was quite a fascinating chap. Uh, it's cool to see someone who used to be in the banking world. Yeah, that was really cool. Who completely changed? I mean, mm. he went through it all. Yeah, and it was it was a good episode because obviously he he got into banking in two thousand and eight. I think he said just right mm. when the sort of financial crisis was hitting um, and Bitcoin was being born. Um, so it was it was right on the cusp of all that, and that was quite an interesting conversation. And uh, obviously, not all bankers are evil. Uh, I know in Bitcoin, we get this idea idea that you know all banks are evil, and the people that work in them are evil. But that's not necessarily the case. So maybe that episode, this episode, explains it a little bit for you. Uh, what else was there? I, I like the part where you went, um, obviously, you know, the big banks like the JP Morgans and all of them, you mm. can argue about shit and stuff. But yeah. he basically went that the issue are the central bankers. And uh, we also talked about CBDCs, how CBDCs, potentially yeah. co commercial banks could become uh, some form of a help for Bitcoin and how we could use them to push the Bitcoin mm -hmm. standard further. So it was really, again, a very chilly episode. We could talk about everything. It was, we were very much vibing and yeah. uh, definitely one, uh, I think, which people can enjoy listening to. Yeah, enjoy, guys. Welcome back, everyone, to Rabbit Hole Story. Uh, or shall I say, servus to Rabbit Hole Story today. Because we got Alex on the show. And I uh, don't want to mention too much or waste any of your time. Quick introduction. This is me, Joel, speaking here with my lovely co-host. Hey, guys. And we are here to listen into Alex's story. So, Alex, the stage is yours. Can you maybe give us like a two-minute introduction as to who you are, what you do in the Bitcoin landscape? And uh, we'll then get down into the rabbit hole on your end. Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Alex Lilica. I'm the founder and CEO of Rise Up Media. So we're a Bitcoin-focused content marketing agency. And uh, we work with a range of Bitcoin companies on their SEO, on their content, social media, copywriting, email campaigns, etc. Um, my... My professional background is in banking. So I started out working in the city in London. I was a, I was a bond trader and then I worked in bond sales in my 20s. Uh, that was just after the, the great financial crisis. So it was a very interesting uh, period to learn about, about finance, learn about the stock market, to learn about money, to learn about how the economy works, which is something that always interested me. Um, but after a few years of doing that, I think I worked in banking for six years, I kind of got fed up sitting in front of like five screens and uh, doing something that really doesn't add much value to society and, you know, dealing with a difficult work environment. And uh, so I, I sort of, I kind of planned my exit and I wanted to do the whole digital nomad thing. And I, had, I did about a year of planning, actually, to figure out how, how I would do it, what I would do, like what kind of work I would start. Because if you, you, know, if you study finance, you become a trader or a, or a sales guy working on the trading floor, you don't really have that many like, actual skills. Um, so that, you, know, like you, you could easily transfer to, to do kind of freelancing or, or some self-employment. So I, so I took some time to, to learn about different possibilities of, of ways I could make money working remotely 
And uh, a few months before I wanted to quit, I was actually made redundant, um, which was a blessing because I got a bit of a redundancy payment, um, which really helped me kind of just, you know, pack up all my stuff and uh, fuck off to Thailand. Um, I definitely did the cliche thing that, uh, you know, all the, all the bankers that quit and, and uh, you know, I guess everyone that quits the corporate world and then uh, at least in the UK and then goes on to do something else, go to Thailand first. So I was sitting on a beach in, in Koh Lanta in Thailand figuring out. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, that was actually a really, that was a really cool time in my life because um, like all the banking stuff was really stressful, especially like the last year or so, because I, I wanted to get out. I just wanted to, you know, do a good job, get my bonus and leave. Um, instead of the bonus, I got the redundancy, which probably was more than the bonus would have been. So that was all right. But but then coming to this work environment where there was a co-working space uh, with with people that were just all doing different things, really nice people, really open, kind of collaborative atmosphere. You know, it was very different to working on the trading floor at a bank in London, where you know you walk in and after about thirty seconds you get fat shamed first thing in the morning. You know, in the co-working space, everything was just nice. Everyone was super chill. And, um, and that's when I was sort of like figuring out kind of what I would do and how I would make money. I had enough savings to sort of travel in, in low cost countries for, for easily for a year. And, and, um, and there was one guy I met who was like, yeah, why don't you start um, writing uh, financial content, you know, freelance writing, if that's something that, you know, you're good at. And because that you know, when you're like a junior in a bank, you do all these like weekly write-ups, daily write-ups, monthly write-ups, you know, just email some and go out to clients, some of them just internal. And, as, and because I was usually the most junior person on the desk, I usually did that. So sort of financial writing is something I already was doing to some extent. And I was quite fortunate that, you know, I went on Upwork and uh, I got a few clients pretty quickly. And that's how I started working as a freelance writer. I also like I had a, had a blog I was building up that now no longer exists, um, and I tried a few other things, but the freelance writing is something that really worked for me. So that was in at the end of 2015 when I left banking, and in the summer of 2016 I was looking for new uh, freelance clients, and I found like a Bitcoin online magazine, and. And I was like, oh, they pay in, uh, in Bitcoin, this would be fun. You know, they didn't pay that well, but I was like, oh, this would be cool. And, and I, uh, I started writing for them. And I think within like two months or so, the, the owner of the magazine was like, hey, like the content you write is by far the best performing. Um, and he just went and increased my rates. And that was the first time I was actually getting paid kind of well for, for freelance writing. And that combined with the fact that I really enjoyed uh, all the Bitcoin stuff. Back then, you know, it was also blockchain. Back then, blockchain wasn't a bad word. Um, but but it, was, it was really interesting. And I thought, you know, with my background in, in traditional finance, and I've, at that point, I've already been following Bitcoin for a long time. Um, I thought, you know, this would be a perfect kind of a niche to work in. And then I think my next client after that magazine was Bitcoin magazine. So I wrote for them in 2016, 2017, um, because the editor from that publication moved to Bitcoin Magazine. That's how I got, that's how I got in, and and yeah, and then I was really like, yeah, let me focus on on Bitcoin, and then back then, you know, blockchain clients and and uh, and so on, and um, yeah, I uh, I 
I was doing freelance writing for different magazines. Then I started working as a freelancer more for for startups and not just doing content, but helping out in other ways, uh, other marketing activities, social media, uh, growth hacking, all sorts of stuff. And then about two years ago, um, I thought to myself, the freelance writing is, or rather the freelance work is great, working with different clients, but it's quite difficult to scale myself. <coughs> and you can only kind of go up with your rates so much, you know, before you kind of price yourself out of working with, with Bitcoin startups. And, uh, and also I, I was running, I sort of had like a, a kind of a blog business that I was trying to build up. So I had different blogs and sort of tech finance, also a Bitcoin blog. And um, I kind of took my money from freelancing and invested it in the blogs. But making money with blogs is essentially, I don't want to say impossible, it's really difficult nowadays. And I never really managed to scale that. But I had like a, a small team of writers that I've been working with for years. So I kind of took them, integrated them into the, the content agency. I sort of did some test runs with some uh, smaller clients and, and clients I've had previously where I just told them, hey, like I'm changing things up a bit. Um, and and then within like three months, I had like a 50% jump in revenue, which made quite a significant difference. And, Amazing. and there and there I was like, yeah, this this really works. This is something I can do. And that's also where, I mean, at that point I was already very much in the sort of like Bitcoin only camp. But then I also decided, like, I really want to work with Bitcoin companies. I don't want to be another Web3 crypto blockchain agency, of which there are many out there. And, and some of them mm-hmm. do a really good job. But I was like, you know what? Like, I want to work with Bitcoin companies. So I really want to focus on, on working with Bitcoin companies. Of course, you can't always pick and choose your clients. Um, and with some of the clients that I've worked with previously, um, you know, sort of like multi-currency uh, clients like a, like a Bitcoin casino that also supports um, you know other cryptocurrency stuff like that, but all the new clients we're taking on now um, or have taken on in the last say six months or so have all been Bitcoin companies. Like that's really the direction I want to go, and we've been very fortunate that despite the sort of like crypto winter we've been in, we've been able to get some some awesome clients on board and build out the team, and uh, yeah. And it's been uh, it's been a really busy and, and good start to the year for us. Yeah, that was my two minute intro. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Uh, and yeah, the writers uh, on your team um, are fantastic, from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Come to their own conclusion. <laughs> um, but what I always wanted to ask you, Alex, is y- you've really probably in the Bitcoin landscape are one of the few people who has seen the dark side if you want to say so you've seen how financial rails the the economy essentially works and for everyone cringing right now yes banks do make the economy run it's not just a couple of weirdos on the street what would you say is the biggest significance between seeing how a bitcoin economy runs and how our regular economy Mm. runs especially within banks that's really interesting i mean the biggest thing with 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 banking and fiat right now is the sort of over leverage in the lending mm. market and people spending money that they don't have. I mean, if you look at, you know, average people on the street, I think that's the big issue is that so many of us are over leveraged, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes, you know, things like consumerism obviously is a massive issue. So um, in, a, in a Bitcoin economy, there would just be a lot less leverage in the system. 
I mean, we've seen that there's lending in Bitcoin as well, and there's a degree of, of fractional reserve banking, which we saw with all the centralized lenders. Uh, and we kind of saw how that played out. But overall, I think when people, when people swallow the orange pill and start to you know, really think about um, the scarcity of, of money or scarcity of Bitcoin, and uh, it makes sense, to, like the propensity to save becomes higher than the propensity to spend uh, if you, when you become a Bitcoiner, because it just makes sense to hold Bitcoin longer than it does with fiat currency. With fiat currency, because of inflation, it just makes sense to spend it, you know, especially now. But with Bitcoin, it, you know, once you have Bitcoin, you have to go and spend your Bitcoin because you've run out of fiat currency, um, you know, waiting for your next uh, salary check to come in. You're going to think twice before, you know, spending it on new shoes or, or you know, new merch or whatever. So, so I think it, 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 for people who understand Bitcoin, it would refocus their, their, their spending habits um, and make wiser purchases and purchase things that they really need as opposed to things that, you know, that advertising tells them they should have. So I think that's, that's one thing and less leverage in the system. So long-term, that would probably also mean less business failures um, due to over leverage. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the main thing. Do you think the, uh, that consumerism is directly linked to fiat currency? Um, and if so, how? So, I mean, it's difficult to say if it comes from fiat currency. I think it comes from um, like overspending and consumerism mm. probably comes from easy access to credit. Like, yeah. I know in the UK, I keep getting, I mean, this is a real story. Barclay card sent me letters <laughs> years that I get a stupid Barclay card credit card, right? And at some point I was like, okay, fuck it. I'll fill out the form. And then they rejected me. I was like, well, why? Is this <laughs> that happened to me as well. Yeah, that happened to me. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious because, well, but, but generally it's quite easy to get access to credit. Um, even things like student credit cards, it's gotten more difficult now because banks, like regulations have changed. So definitely mm. it's easier. In America, from what I understand, it's a much bigger issue. Yep. Um, with people going into debt for, for consumer goods because you have all this like uh, uh, buy now, pay later stuff. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think the access to easy credit is, is the big issue, which is a function of fiat currency. So, mm. so yeah, that's probably a link. But whether it really comes from fiat currency itself, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's the easy access to credit and how it's advertised and, and also a lack of financial literacy, right? Because like once, what, when you, I mean, I don't know when you got your first credit card, you know, it was 18, 19, 20, something like that. And you start spending, you're like, ooh, this is fun. But then you realize you have to pay it all back by a certain date. Otherwise, you get charged interest. And then you're like, oh, it's only so and so much interest, you know, and then it gets built up and built up. And I mean, that credit cards in a way is uh, what's left over from kind of predatory banking practices that you saw in like mm -hmm. the 80s, you know, that you would just sell financial products and not really explain to, to the buyer how they worked. Um, so yeah, I think that's sort of a leftover function from that. The the regulations mm. around that have, have gotten much tighter. Like, you know, I get letters from my credit card provider all the time saying, oh yeah, you should like top up on the minimum payment and stuff like that. Um, because now they're required to do so. It's a good thing. But um, but yeah, I think easy access to credit is probably what, what drives consumerism. And then also advertising. 
and you know the false advertising of certain lifestyles and what's supposed to be important you know i think that plays into it too i, I always wonder how social media ties into this as well um especially if you go onto like Facebook or TikTok and stuff like that, it's just full of ads and people trying to um, have the perfect body, the perfect house, you know, and it's just driving people to have, you know, envy really and, and trying to over leverage themselves to get, to get this ideal fantasy that's put out there for them. And this credit is offered to them in a way, um, which is going to drive them further in debt. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's an issue. I know I had a, <clears throat> when I was in university, I had a roommate and he um, he came from a wealthy family, but he still had a credit card and he put a lot of money on there and he went out mm. a lot. Um, he had a nice car and I didn't realize that because I was like, you know, your parents giving you that much money, you know. <laughs> Um, but he actually had a credit card. He was ramping up debt. Um, I assume it worked out for him because he got a good a good job um, later on in the financial industry. But but I saw that and it was very foreign to me. Um, I know culturally, like I'm 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 from Austria, and in Austria we don't like most young people don't have credit cards. That's not really that's not really a thing. Everyone has their like debit cards essentially. <laughs> Um, so that's not so much of a thing in the UK. There's the access to credit is definitely easier. There's also a much bigger financial services sector. But from what I understand in the US, that's that's much worse because there people are really spending money they don't have on things they don't need, and that's just a spiral that's not going to end well. Yeah, the American dream, eh? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the crazy thing is, I just had that uh, two days ago on the tube. There were. Um, where I live, the tube station, there is like one campaign banner for like uh, the British Airways American Express credit card. And the other one is for a neobank here in England. The neobank, which is protected up to like 85 grand under the FCS insurance, and you get 3% interest on your savings. And then you looked down the other way into the billboard for the American Express card, and it just said right in the foot to like 27.2% interest rates if you're late on your payment. And I was like, that's the perfect wow. image between what we actually should do, because I think you should mm. in earn interest on your savings, because that's essentially what Bitcoin gives you as well over the long run. Um but no, go into debt and pay us more money because that keeps the boat afloat. Um, so yeah, it's always interesting if you, if you see the comparison between two, the two systems. Um, but for the people not knowing how a banking lifestyle looks like, uh, Alex, because like, I think a lot of people think if they watch HBO's industry, for example... That you like uh, fuck around a whore each night and like do how many lines of cocaine, um, <laughs> and you like close billion dollar deals in like over lunch breaks or whatever. You've been watching too much TV, Joel. <laughs> I watched the last season. I watched the last season. I didn't watch the new one. Um, what is it really like working in a bank? Because I think at the end of the day, it's pretty mundane. It's trying to sell something to someone twenty four seven. I think it depends. So obviously within banking, like. There's so many different roles. There's so many different jobs. Um, I think that what you mentioned, the whole like, uh, you know, going out, partying, doing cocaine, all of that, um, that definitely happens. Um, it happened a lot more in the 80s and 90s. Um, I definitely saw it happen uh, when, uh, when I was still working in banking. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with going out and having fun. Um, but, you know, most people working in banking are normal people, you know, like families at home 
Um, I mean, the Christmas parties can get a bit crazy and stuff like that, but... Like every Christmas party. <laughs> exactly, at every company, right? So I think, like, what's, what's important to... You know, like, we Bitcoiners, we love to bash banks, and, you know, with good reason, because dealing with banks nowadays can be incredibly frustrating and challenging. And some of that is not just that these are kind of old and slow institutions. Some of that is also regulations. So you can't always blame the bank. Like if you're trying to do an international money transfer and you forget like the verification SMS, you know, the fraud check SMS and you don't respond, mm. then they like freeze your account. That's super fun, especially when you're abroad, right? But as annoying as that is, um, it's not entirely the bank's fault because those are regulations, those are laws that put on them. Um, so, so we have to be a bit fair there. It doesn't mean that customer service couldn't be better at most banks. It could be, but, but there we have to be fair. But also, you know, the, for, for us Bitcoiners, like the enemy is not, you know, like NatWest Bank, you know, it's, it's, or, or Metro Bank or whatever, you know. The, the, maybe not. Maybe not West is. They just agreed I, I to do the CBDC. I was like, yeah, they've been closing accounts with Bitcoiners apparently. But um, but uh, the real issue is are the central banks. You know, it's not it's not commercial banks that you know are doing like lending to small businesses or whatever. Like you do need banks. It makes you know like like banking as such is not an evil business. Um, but you know, central banks that control the monetary policy and have such a strong influence over the economy and therefore people's lives and are sometimes run by people that sh probably shouldn't be running anything. Uh, that's, that's the bigger issue, I would say. Um, and then going out and saying that, you know, printing money doesn't cause inflation um, <laughs> and things like that. It's just like, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's the bigger issue. Um, it's those, it's the people that control the money, not, you know, commercial banks that are giving out loans to people or where you have your, you know, your fiat currency parked. So I think that's a distinction that we should make. I mean, yes, there's definitely, I do think that, that, that uh, certain players in the banking industry are pushing it back against Bitcoin. I'm sure all these anti-Bitcoin articles are not just coming from like climate advocates that don't understand how, how Bitcoin works. Um, or don't want to see the innovation in, in, in clean energy mining. I think there's definitely a, a part of the banking industry that's also pushing back against Bitcoin, probably the ones that, again, don't understand it. At the same time, you have other banks that are embracing Bitcoin and bringing out Bitcoin financial products. I, I think Bitcoin as an investment asset, I mean, Bitcoin is a lot of things, right? It's like a store of value, it's a, it's a currency, an investment mm. asset. As an investment asset, um, banks are going to adopt it and start selling it themselves. There's so many that are doing it already, sometimes wrapped in some kind of financial product, sometimes uh, directly. Um, I mean, when Wall Street starts to play with Bitcoin, I get a little nervous, admittingly, mm. because Bitcoin is not... I mean, Bitcoin is for everyone, so everyone can do whatever they want with it. But really, I mean, the way... What I like about Bitcoin is that it can bring about, you know, fundamental change in society at large and in all, all corners of the world. Um, so I don't really need Wall Street, you know, playing ping pong with the price of Bitcoin, but you know, it's permissionless and anyone can do whatever they want with it. So that's going to yeah. happen as well. Um, yeah. and for Bitcoin to get adopted as an investment asset is not a bad thing because 
uh, a climbing price of Bitcoin helps the entire Bitcoin ecosystem. That's something that took me a long time to understand. That I used to very much be one of those people that didn't care where the price of Bitcoin was trading because when I started working in Bitcoin, I was getting paid in Bitcoin. I was getting paid in Bitcoin and then I had to exchange it to fiat currency so I could eat. You know, like I used mm -hmm. like, currency or I used like BitRefill to top up my phone back in like 2016. Um, so I use it as a currency and I always wanted Bitcoin to succeed as a currency. Um, but I've come to learn, I think it was from Matt Odell on a podcast that I learned that, that um, for those guys that care mainly about Bitcoin as investment, the price to go up, they help the rest of the ecosystem because the more Bitcoin, the, the higher the price of Bitcoin is, the more money Bitcoin companies have and make. So um, that helps the entire ecosystem. So sort of the like, the investment number go up guys are helping more the sort of the builders and the, the crypto anarchist type Bitcoiners. So, so there's got that kind of symbiotic relationship there. So I think banks adopting Bitcoin and selling it to, to customers is net net good for Bitcoin. Um, <clears throat> I'm wondering whether banks, um, how they feel about the introduction of um, CBDCs? Cause I know it was recently announced here in the UK that um, that's something that we're most definitely heading towards um, that's that's the road we, we seem to be going down here. Um, so I'm wondering what banks might be thinking about what this looks like and whether or not they um, have an appetite for CBDCs and whether um, it will flush quite a lot of them out. What What's your view on that? That's a really good question. Um, so with, with CBDCs, since they will be issued by central banks directly, it does kind of cut out commercial banks which is going to be really interesting to see how that develops mm. because the banking industry as a lobby is incredibly strong and powerful. It's one of the biggest lobbies in the world. So I don't think central banks are going to be able to bypass the banking sector entirely. So they're going to have to come up with some sort of deal where, I don't know, maybe the banks, you know, help them um, distribute the CBDC or, you know, I mean, still, they can still charge interest on on, uh, on CBDCs as well when they're using them. We're using the, the digital pound now or, or the CBDC version mm. of the pound. Not really make much of a difference there. Mm. Um, but all the CBDC stuff started way after I left banking. So I was never there for any conversations internally. So I couldn't really give you a, a really solid answer there. But I mean, you just mentioned it. The fucked up part is our money is already digital. The only thing that mm. changes with the CBDC, and this is where we cross the line into, holy shit, this is getting fucking dangerous. The central bank has total authority even over the commercial banks. And we can now argue with like, you know, whose side is like big money on, um, like, is it the Fed that's controlling Wall Street or is it the Wall Street that's controlling the Fed uh, in the US, for example. But at the end of the day, if they sort of have the emergency button, they can always push and either cut off money at all or they just take the money back, I guess. That's sort of the utopia they have. Uh, I think that's the scary thing. But to be honest, the more I speak to like normal people out there, because the more CBDCs gets into the news, um, especially here in the UK, the more normal people realize like, hang on, what's the difference now between paying for my coffee with my Apple Pay 
and with a CBDC, nothing. And that's for us as Bitcoiners ideal because you can then go in there like, hey, mate, there's actually an option where like you don't have to worry about the bank at all. And it's also on your phone. <laughs> you just need the merchant to accept it. So I've, I mentioned this at another episode. I think bankers especially, if they understand that they have more freedom as well with Bitcoin, could be a blessing in surprise um, to help us fight the CBDC tyranny. And, and who's to say that the CBDCs will work? I mean, that's a whole other discussion point as well. So I think CBDCs are very scary. Um, back in, I don't know, it was 2016 or 17, um, when I started learning about more about Bitcoin and altcoins and everything, I, I predicted back then that countries are going to start issuing their own cryptocurrencies. I think I called them sovereign digital currencies back then. But um, not far off. Yeah, not, not completely off. Um, but the idea that you have something that's completely traceable mm. is already problematic. And then uh, combining it with the fact that you know it's programmable and you know you can you can <laughs> essentially blacklist someone's individual wallet if it's linked to your identity, which it would be, is mm -hmm. extremely. I mean, the the the, the propensity for misuse is really high and you know you could argue okay uh you know say governments in europe for the most part you know aren't as evil as governments in other parts of the world well yes that's true but things can change though down the road things right? can change really quickly first yeah, of all, just look at the last three years yeah i mean that's what we saw during the the COVID lockdowns like regardless of where you stand on that whole situation the fact is that governments in, in Europe and in the UK went and just said from one day to the next, you can't go to your job. And if you don't have a remote job, you're fucked. Like, you're not going to make any money. And eventually, a few months down the road, you'll get some relief money, you know. But but that was that really showed that, like, all the crazy conspiracy theory people are actually right to some extent that, like, your government will turn on you really quickly. And there's really nothing you can do about it. I mean, during lockdown, yeah. you can you can you know, load up your boat with Bitcoin, but what's that going to help you if you can't go outside, you know? Right. So, so that was very scary. And now letting those people have like their finger on the button to decide what you can and can't do with your money. Uh, that's, that's very scary. And especially like in Europe where, you know, you have a lot of sort of um, like uh, the social Democrats and green party uh, leaders that you know are, are really pushing like a climate agenda, for example. If they're going to come out and say, "Well, you know, we we need to you know re reduce our CO two footprint, so you can only fly, you know, three times a year, and we can control that because we can see what you're paying for, and you know, a little code goes, you know, little little uh, ping goes off when you when trying to buy your fourth flight, um, then you just can't, you know, unless." Most likely, you're gonna to have to pay extra, kind of like with those CO2 certificates that companies can buy and sell. And then it's like, okay, so then we're back to like, you know, rich people can do whatever they want, and you know, poor people get fucked, right? That's not that's not really the egalitarian dream that the, you know, <clears throat> European politicians pro uh, proclaim to have, right? So, I think CBDCs, like the propensity for abuse, is just really high. So. Um, I think that's a really important story for us as Bitcoiners to also tell and explain because it's another selling point to have at least some Bitcoin. I always tell people that, like, like I mentioned earlier, Bitcoin is a lot of things. And one of them is that it's also like a doomsday hedge 
And Doomsday Hedge doesn't mean like sort of like the walking dead scenario, you know, where the whole world collapses. But like, you know, if suddenly you have central bank digital currency that dictates what you can and can't buy, um, then you need to have Bitcoin if you want to buy certain things that you need, you know. It doesn't have to be something illegal. It could just be like, you know, like a, a flight on a service provider that accepts Bitcoin, right? Um, so I think it's, it's really important for that. Or also, if you do get blacklisted, uh, your wallet address, or if they start to freeze your account because you're in investigation for whatever, you know, they're just, it's like even nowadays already, it's important to have, I would say like a few months worth of expenditure in, in Bitcoin. You know, for simple things, like it could be something really simple, like say you're traveling abroad, say you're going to a Bitcoin conference in El Salvador and you know, Barclays like cuts off your debit card because you used it in El Salvador and they thought there was a scammer who stole your card. And, and then like you can't reach them on the phone or whatever, then you need to use Bitcoin. I mean, El Salvador is actually a bad example because there you could just go to the ATM and exchange your Bitcoin um, and start spending fiat or you use your Bitcoin there. But say you're like, uh, I was once in Colombia and my, my, one of my bank cards got blocked and I was really lucky that my other bank card, which was like an old student card, still worked. So I was, pay for, I was able to pay for my hotel the first night. And this was a long time ago, so I had to get my dad to Western Union me cash. This sort of Bitcoin days. Um, or rather, Bitcoin was, was not that big yet. Um, just so that I have access to money. So it's really easy with, with banks nowadays to lose access, let alone if you're under some sort of investigation, if you're like a... You know, a business owner, and you you know upset the wrong person, or if you're an activist and you upset the wrong politician, um, and you get your accounts frozen, that can happen nowadays. Happens to people in in uh, in, in countries with um, sort of harsher harsher governments, and uh, and that really helps if you have you know at least a few months worth of Bitcoin, so that you can feed yourself because you, you're always going to find someone who's going to trade Bitcoin for fiat. Worst case scenario, you have to pay a premium, but but, uh, you know, that's something that, yeah, for that alone, everyone should hold. All this reminds me of the saying, what's the saying? Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely, isn't it? And I think, um, you know, with with uh, the introduction of CBDCs, you've got one central authority controlling all of the money. Um, that's going to inevitably, in my mind, lead to some kind of um, dystopian kind. We'll be not be able to have any choice um, other than just to adhere to their, the rules that they set. Because if we don't, we're at risk of running into sanctions, being locked out of our accounts. Um, and it's, it's, it's a dangerous um, road ahead of us. Um, what I, what I and I think with that absolute power, there's nothing stopping uh, a government just turning um, their ideologies around and becoming more aggressive. And you, you mentioned earlier about not necessarily doing anything illegal, um, like taking a flight somewhere. That might actually, in, in the future, become... So if, you, if you go over your carbon footprint and you're discovered travelling abroad using Bitcoin, you know, that potentially could, could land you in, in some sort of sanction somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's. Or is that my tin Is that my tinfoil hat uh, just landed on my head? I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's it's really that far off because I mean I, I share your view entirely, um, and I think we have to be a bit realistic about what can come in the future. I mean, <clears throat> if you just look at sort of um, how how in the direction that society is moving in, with surveillance capitalism being a big thing, um, <clears throat> surveillance in general not just from intelligence agencies, but 
but sort of at, at scale from pretty much every government and every corporation just harvesting your data. Um, I mean, your, your, your bank now, if you use, if you have one bank and one bank card and you use it everywhere going around in London, you know, tapping in and out of the tube, buying your coffee at the same Costa in the morning, they know exactly where you are pretty much at all times, you know, and if that's then in the hands of the wrong governments, I mean, you can argue any government, but we have to be fair, some are worse than others. Um, but if that gets, you know, that kind of power goes into the wrong hands, that kind of absolute power, like you said, that could be a recipe for disaster. I mean, I don't want to be too negative, but it's definitely possible if you look at how governments have handled, you know, the whole COVID situation, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's the, the, the crazy thing is really, just like you said, um, obviously, because Alex is from Austria, I'm from Switzerland, so we're kind of, I think would say brought up similarly, um, also with like the political backgrounds and things. The crazy thing is, it's especially people currently actually supporting a cause which would increase like the thing they're fighting against so that's the that's the fucked up part i think how blind or corrupted i think it's more heading into that direction do you have to be to not see that what you're currently doing will not only make humanity worse in my opinion but at the same time give no absolute economic freedom anymore to not just one generation but tens of generations ahead and i think that is the that is the thing that really scares me because yes if everyone unites we can essentially overthrow governments i think that's not a secret if you've seen any hollywood movie but at the end of the day you know do we find enough people to be financially literate enough to understand holy shit it's not just that they know what i do and that they can cut me off but they can fuck up the future of my kids, of my grandkids, of however far in advance you want to go. And I think that to me is the most scary thing. I don't have plans of having kids. Um, I know, Alec, for example, you have kids. So like, I don't know if you look at this, if you're a father. Uh, Ian, sorry, you all have kids, obviously. Um, but that's really what where, where I'm going like, holy shit, it's not just the next generation. They can really destroy the next 100 years if they want to if technology increases the way it has increased in the last 20 years i'm glad we're so upbeat about the future <laughs> it's got to be bullish it's got to be bullish for bitcoin in some way though all this surely people will be like oh fuck like this is gonna be a little i, I won't be able to buy my little bit of you know a little bit of coke a little bit of this or whatever and you know i'm not suggesting like bitcoin is 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 for criminals because you know criminals do use bitcoin but you know, it's freedom money. We can transact with whoever we want, with whatever we want, as long as we're training in Bitcoin. And, and But when you, you're sort of introducing a CBDC, when quickly the laws might change about what is allowed and what, is, what isn't allowed with your money, um, and people are then going to start sort of getting locked out of, of their bank accounts, I think all, all of that is just only going to sort of lead people over to the orange sun in some way. It should, but I think for that to happen, we as a community and also as an industry, we have to hammer those points home, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. difficult to do because we sound like conspiracy theorists. Right. Um, and some of us are. So, But, but it's really yeah. important for us, um, <clears throat> to, <clears throat> for, so for us as individuals, but also for Bitcoin companies, to go out and and you know explain those different use cases for Bitcoin, sort of the why Bitcoin story mm. is extremely important, and that's an aspect of it. That like with Bitcoin, you you are in complete control of your money, you own your money, 
And with fiat currency today, and especially with CBDCs tomorrow, like the government can take control of you, uh, can, t can have complete control over you and your actions. And the, the, the tricky thing is, and I think that's what you alluded to, Joel, is that so many people right now just don't care. Like mm. so many young people, especially like, I, I keep like I, I regularly read um, about sort of Gen Z and how they're different from from millennials and and that and apparently they are quite activist overall, but then like a lot of them are like climate change or like climate activists and environmentalists. Now I'm not saying that's bad. Like we don't want to go and destroy our planet, but the way the whole climate change story has been hijacked by politicians, especially in Europe, in the EU. Uh, to sort of push through these kind of agendas like a CBDC where they could limit, I mean, they spoke about this, politicians are speaking openly about limiting how much people can fly. Mm. And, and when you then have a whole generation that is very activist and like pro-climate, let's save the planet, you know, then that's really tricky. Like, I'm not a climate change denier, but even I've come to the point where I'm like, when all these sort of like, oh, we're destroying the planet this way and that way, and we're doing this wrong, I'm like, well, can we fact check this? Can we kind of double check? You know, like, yeah. like that. That's where, like, you know, I very much grew up, um, you know, being like, okay, it's important to recycle, and yeah. you know, like, we want to, you know, kind of fix the whole like, like cleaning up the oceans, that kind of thing, and that's all good stuff. Like, we want our planet to be in, in great shape for the future generations, for for our kids, Ian, right? Mm -hmm. but, um, but now we've reached a point where all this climate stuff is really like feeding into uh, more totalitarian politics, and you know, and, and in, in Europe where I follow it to some degree, like, you just don't want to end up in this sort of like kind of technocratic, kind of green socialist uh, a dystopia where, like we said, we can't suddenly buy certain things because it's not approved by by the powers that be um, for, you know, whatever reason they come up with, whether it's the climate or otherwise. So, so yeah, it's it's tricky. And, the, and yeah, young people, like, they just, yeah, we need to go around orange pilling people with the right arguments. That's... That's what I want to get at. Um, and the CBDC, yeah. like, because people over, uh, overarchingly don't like the government. Like, there's, you're not going to meet many people. The only people that like the government are the people that work for the government. You know, <laughs> that's pretty much it, you know. Um, and then people who get government handouts, they're usually also, like, not too anti-government. But, but that's still a small section of the population. So if you tell people, like, look, with Bitcoin, you can do whatever you want at all times. Um, and it's your money. And, you know, the government's money is the government's money. I think that could be a good selling point. But as a Bitcoin company, that's also kind of hard to go out to the public to, to sell, right? Like, how do, you, how do you wrap up that message without sounding too crazy and without alienating sort of the average person on the street? Because if you go to a Bitcoiner and, and say this, then they're like, yeah, I get it. But mm. to sell that kind of argument to, to a normie is, is tricky, right? But I think, or at least that's what I see with my friends, because a lot of them are, I call them the eternal students. Um, you know, in some <laughs> countries, that's enough for you to become chancellor. Um, we've seen this in Austria, right, Alex? <laughs> you could be an eternal uh, student and become yeah. a chancellor. You're just, uh, you're an idiot and then you lose the position. Um, <laughs> but the good thing, I think, is that you, if you have politicians who abuse the 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 climate debate and there's clearly a debate going on 
at some point, if they don't fulfill their promises, I think that's the exact moment we as Bitcoiners need to go to these groups and say, like, they lied to you to get your vote. That's inevitable. You had to make that experience. None of us are born with like the silver spoon up our asses. But what makes you think that they don't lie about money as well? And that to me was the thing where I hooked all of my friends who are environmentalists and activists immediately. They were like, fuck, you got a point. And mm. then, you know, they're open-minded. And then I can come in like, you know, I know you're like against Bitcoin because of the environment fought, but like, here is the data I can show you. 60%, possibly more running on renewables. This is in the works in Africa, Central America, uh, South America. You know, you can layer all of these things on top. So I think we Bitcoiners often tend to like play these younger generations down. And I'm also part of that outer skirt of that generation. Um, but we have to give them a chance somehow. And they have to make that negative experience. Otherwise, they're not open enough to, to do the first important step and look into Bitcoin. That's difficult, though, Joel, I think, because, you know, you've got a generation that's essential. This is the problem with um, centralized authorities being in control of a narrative for a long period of time. The consequence is the next generation are going to be born into a narrative that they're going to grow up with believing. And this is what's happening now with, I think, what you're saying, Alex, with the whole climate issues. I'm also not a climate denier. You know, I've, I think there are issues with... Um, what the human, what, what us as a species are doing to the planet, you know. But I also believe, um, like you know, the 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 planet does go through cycles of being warmer and cooler over millennia and things like that. You know, it's part of a natural cycle of things. But I also believe that humans are also speeding up that process. But the the narrative that's being put out there about um, the type of things, the behaviours that we should be doing, that the 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 stuff that we should be conscious of when 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 we're going out and buying stuff in uh, the supermarkets and things like that, you know, it's a narrative that's been sort of given to us over a long period of time, and these people going out and protesting, they actually believe that. They, they they they've they've swallowed the green pill if you like mm. um and it's hard to undo that especially when they've grown up uh, believing that it's it's a difficult one to untangle yeah but look at all of our journey once we actually took the the well the orange pill really wakes you up in a sense that most mm. of the financial rails are are quite tricky um but what was what was your first reaction to realizing shit are things are fucked up like you're in shock. And I think or what I've seen from my friend circle and what I've heard, how they then proceed to like orange pill other activists as well. The moment you're in shock and you realize I've been lied to, that's the best opportunity for growth. And I mean, all of us have had it in different experiences. So what I'm trying to say is like, let's not lose hope on these people. And uh, yeah, we are definitely in the face in that um conviction orange pilling where it's just going to take a lot of hard work we need to be stubborn and we'll need to be able to convince people that it's maybe not the the ideal solution let's face it we also have stuff in bitcoin we need to fix but it's the first step in a pretty much important direction we need to do now um and looking back, it's only been 14 years since Bitcoin was born. So <laughs> how crazy, how fast we got here. But um, I, I think what people should take away is we don't need to lose hope and we need to give people some time um, to get on board. Not enough of us got Bitcoin immediately. Yeah, yeah that's true. From, from our discussion, it shows that 
like there's different avenues that you can get people kind of to adopt Bitcoin on one hand, purely the investment aspect, because usually people that invest money that have some idea of investing are going to research what they're investing in. And then there's a chance that they're going to go deeper down the rabbit hole. Um, then, you know, people who are, might be more, a bit more like anti-government or conspiracy minded, you can explain to them like, okay, CBDCs are coming, you better, you know, load up the boat Bitcoin. Um, then with the climate, you know, people that are more, you know, climate activists or in that kind of realm, there you can explain to them, you know, how, you know, Bitcoin mining is changing and that the industry is mindful of its impact on the planet. Um, <clears throat> and, and also what's really important in that whole discussion is like, people need to understand that Bitcoin is not, I, I feel like to, to, to complete normies who don't work in finance or tech and have never kind of really taken time to learn much about Bitcoin, they look at Bitcoin the way we look at Dogecoin. They just look yes. at it as some kind of funny internet meme money that some people got rich over that might be a Ponzi scheme, but you don't really understand it, but I kind of want some, you know, like that's how like a lot of people look at it, you know, they don't take it serious. Um, and that's just where, like, again, as a community, but also as an industry, you have to educate people um, and, and explain to them, like, the profound impact that Bitcoin can have simply as, like, an open monetary network that anywhere in the world can access. And, and that alone is so powerful, you know, and, and obviously there's more things being built on Bitcoin now and there's more coming, uh, which is great. But fundamentally, like Bitcoin's core use case is already like so fundamentally important for the world and could bring about so much positive change that, um, you know, that's what people need to understand. That's what I always try to, to hammer home when I'm orange peeling someone um, is, is just how powerful Bitcoin is just in its core use case. But yeah, I think it's important to like, if you're gonna orange peel people, like don't force it on them. I think that's also important. You know, like if they are curious or if something like CBDCs come up, you can bring it in. But, you know, you want to find just different angles of how to communicate Bitcoin's value proposition to different types of people. So I think your example, Joel, with your with your climate friends, I think is a really good one. Yeah. You shouldn't go in too hard and too fast, right? Yeah. That's what she said. <laughs> that is what she said. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's... Uh, what what work are you doing at Rise Up Media to to put the signal out there um, <clears throat> for Bitcoin? So fundamentally, our mission is to 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 bring more Bitcoin to the people by helping Bitcoin companies spread Bitcoin to the people, um, and especially with things like messaging. Like content is in the digital age is really important because that's how you can spread your message of you know what Bitcoin really is, you know why Bitcoin. Um, you know, why you should hold Bitcoin, um, why you should use Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, fundamentally, the, the core of, of what I want to bring to the Bitcoin community with my company and to the, to the whole movement is help businesses, uh, help Bitcoin businesses um, attract more users and thereby spread Bitcoin to the hands of more people. And it's, I think fundamentally, that's kind of what all Bitcoiners share. To, to some degree, is that we want to help Bitcoin adoption grow because we believe in this. I think as much as there are arguments and disagreements in our in the wider community, that's the one thing that we all have in common that we all share. I was just waiting if you want to say something, Ian. <laughs> it looked no, like you I, wanted I, I to say something. I was, but the moment it's gone. I was having trouble unmuting my mic, but go on. Sorry, Joel. <laughs> no worries. Um, 
Alex, what you mentioned in the beginning of the interview, getting back to how you found Bitcoin, where you got stuck. From what I've heard, you you really got on board and you got paid. So you used it as a currency pretty early on. Would you say then that that use case was the reason you got interested in Bitcoin? Or as a former trader, was it like making money off it? What was the, the moment it stuck with you then? So, so actually, one thing that we haven't properly gone into is my rabbit hole story. So maybe I should start there. Um, so I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011. Um, a friend of mine from uni and I, after we finished university, decided we want to go travel to Asia. So we picked Hong Kong as a destination. And uh, we, we flew in from separate countries. And we met up there. And I think it, was, it must have been the first evening or so. I was sitting in Pizza Hut out of all places. Uh, and he was telling me about Bitcoin, this internet money. And I remember for a few days, like we kept talking about it. And he explained it to me and I kind of understood, okay, so it's like internet money, it's composed of code. And back then he even said like the price could go to 1 million and he kind of explained to me because it's limited. Um, and and uh, I wanted to, like a few months later, like I didn't have any money at the time, but I checked out the price and it was around $10 back then. And I wanted to go and buy some on Mt. Gox actually, because I think that the time that was oh, wow. that I found, but I needed to use some weird dodgy payment provider. And then I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. And then I kind of just left it. And around that time, I also started my career in banking and I was really focused on that. Um, but I remember I wanted to put a thousand pounds into Bitcoin or $10 at the time. That was my plan because I got like a sign-on bonus. I don't know if banks still pay those, but they did back then. And I will take some of that and put it into Bitcoin, but just the whole payment provider thing, getting the money sent there, it was, it was a massive pain in the ass. So I didn't do it. And then I started, I did follow Bitcoin here and there, especially around 2013, when the price went to a thousand. Um, I think it was also 2013 that uh, Bloomberg um, had like the Bitcoin ticker yep. on the Bloomberg terminal. So I followed it. I had it on, on, my, uh, on my screen with all my other stuff when I was trading. And, and nice I was really kind of following <laughs> it. And yeah, in 2013, the, like the price rallied like crazy. And that's when I really was like, okay, wow, that's interesting. And in 2014, I bought Bitcoin for the first time. Uh, I know this because when I went back to delete all my old Facebook posts, I found <laughs> a post where I said like, oh, I just you know, bought cryptocurrency. And it turns out I bought Bitcoin and Litecoin at the same time. It was January, 2014. Now, if you, look at, if you go on CoinMarketCap and look at the price chart, at that point, I think it went from $800 to $200 pretty quickly. Um, so that was a super fun first experience. Um, but uh, around like in the sort of years to follow, I kind of traded in and out a little bit, but with small amounts of money. Um, I didn't take it too serious. I, I looked at it very much as like, oh, this could work out or this couldn't work mm -hmm. out because back then you didn't really know. Like I did not have that strong conviction until way later. Um, so yeah, I kind of followed it a bit. At my last banking job, people make fun of me for it, um, that I was talking about Bitcoin. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, uh, some of them messaged me a few years later and were like, yeah, I should have listened to you. And I was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I, I, I traded in and out. And then in 2016, 
is when I started working and there I got paid in Bitcoin. And at some point, something like 80% of my income was in Bitcoin. So there was no, there was no hodling it. Like I had to use it to, to eat, mm. you know? Um, so I pretty much got it and converted it to fiat currency at the time. Um, and I used Bit refill to top up my phone. Those are the main services I used. Um, and yeah, from, from there onwards, like when all the ICO stuff happened, like Ethereum came out, all the ICO stuff. So I also like invested in some ICOs. I think I have a very similar sort of Bitcoin story as, as many of us where mm -hmm. I like, started off with Bitcoin and then it was like, ooh, what else is out? Actually before that already, back in 2014, I had like, you know, Peercoin and Namecoin and all these like random coins. Cause you know, if you come from like traditional finance, you're like, you want to have a diversified portfolio and you can have some winners, mm -hmm. and, right? Yeah, that doesn't really work that well in, in, in the cryptocurrency space. Um, so eventually I sold all of that, the Litecoin, everything as well. And I had, uh, I had Bitcoin, um, was the one thing that I held on to for a while. Um, but then, yeah, with the ICOs uh, there, I made a bit of money. Uh, again, not much because I didn't really have much to invest. But at the time, it was like a nice amount of money. And then the whole 2017 and 2018, when the ICO bubble burst, and then I kind of saw all these like different altcoins that came up that were promising like really good technology and much faster than Ethereum and all that. And I and just realized that, yeah, like the more I followed Bitcoiners on social media that were bashing everything that wasn't Bitcoin, I was starting to be like, yeah, actually they're right. Like at first I didn't understand it because Bitcoin was very much about, about free markets for me. And if you believe in free markets, then like you have to accept that there's other things out there as well. But it's pretty clear that, you know, that, you know, a good probably 99% of, of cryptocurrencies or, or altcoins out there are shit coins. I mean, the term is there for a reason. Uh, right. I agree with that. Um, so at some point, I'm not sure it was 2018 or 2019, I, I pretty much flushed my, my Twitter and started following only Bitcoiners. And I was like, you know what, this is what I want to focus on because this is the most kind of robust, makes the most sense. And then I really started to learn more about Bitcoin. I became much more convinced that Bitcoin is here to stay, which for years I was like, this can go one way, it can go the other. It's cool that the price mm -hmm. goes up, you know, um, but what, yeah. And, then, and so that's when I kind of went, you know, de facto Bitcoin only. What was the turning point for you for that? Sorry to interrupt, but what 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 kind? Because you spent quite a lot of time in 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 Bitcoin, speculating on it a little bit, and but then eventually, you, you know, in two thousand and nineteen, you realized something. Do, can you remember what that was? I think it's. <clears throat> I mean, when when the, the sort of the last crypto winter happens, and essentially every altcoin dropped by ninety nine percent, plus <laughs> the fact that not, no one was really delivering anything. You know, it was yeah. all just fake promises. Yeah. And I'm yeah. sure the technology of some of these blockchains is really good, you know, but if they're not building anything of substance and mm. no value is being added anywhere, um, I mean, aside from Ethereum, there's really not much happening on other blockchains even now. I mean, they're just copying what's happening on Ethereum. But, yeah. um, but even if you look at what's on Ethereum, what is really there that's really adding value to society? A few years ago, there were some like money transfer for startups that were using Ethereum uh, and stuff like that. But aside from stable coins, what really adds value that's running on Ethereum? You know, whereas Bitcoin, you know, itself adds massive value already to society, even though it's still kind of a niche 
thing. So I think the turning point was just seeing that, you know, a lot of these things were essentially scams um, and just seeing that no, no value was delivered. And at the end mm -hmm. of the day, Bitcoin is, is what survived and also Bitcoin is what makes the most sense because um, you don't really need a blockchain for a lot of these blockchain use cases. But um, for money, having that infrastructure makes sense. So yeah, I, I would say it's that. It was a good question. I never really thought about that, but yeah. I just remember like flushing out my Twitter and being like, let me follow specifically Bitcoiners. Yeah, because you spent quite a lot of space, uh, sorry, a lot of time in the space. So I imagine over time you started to see the resilience of Bitcoin and, you know, the, the you know, going through the, the crypto winter and things like that, you can then start to see the others sort of falling apart, I suppose. And yeah, no, it's interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, Bitcoin's resilience and that it, like eventually I just kind of went from, oh, this could work out to this couldn't work out to being like, no, mm. this, this is going to work. I mean, there are still, we shouldn't be overconfident. I think there's still threats out there. Even the whole, oh, yeah. <clears throat> the, 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 the social attack vector with the climate change stuff is a big one. Mm. Young people are going to be anti-Bitcoin because of the climate thing. And we're not doing a good job. Um educating people about this, then that's a, that's a threat, you know? Doesn't mean the Bitcoin network's gonna collapse, but Bitcoin adoption might stall, you know? So, um, so yeah, I think the resilience is, is a big one. Like I'm very convinced now, I mean, like most Bitcoiners, I have an irresponsible amount of my net worth in Bitcoin. Um, I think that's pretty standard uh, in our community. And I'm definitely convinced that Bitcoin is gonna be around. Um, it's probably gonna outlive me. Where do you see Bitcoin in 10 years? Um, well, price-wise, a lot higher than now. Um, I, I do think, the, the, I, I like the, the gold narrative that Bitcoin is, is digital gold, like from an, from an asset kind of store of value and investment point of view, that Bitcoin is, is going to reach the same um, total market cap as gold. I think that's realistic. When that happens, the price will, will overshoot massively uh, as as it tends, as these things tend to go. So having like a million dollar Bitcoin price, I would not be totally shocked if that happens. Um, whether it's going to happen within 10 years, it could be possible. Maybe it's going to take longer. Um, but in terms of the network, I think all these second and third layer solutions are going to be really interesting and play a much bigger role. I mean, uh, eventually like on-chain transactions are going to become really expensive. So you're only going to use that for really large uh, large value transactions and um, and you know probably in 10 years most people will get onboarded to like a layer two just buy Bitcoin on lightning um, yeah I think I think that's gonna happen also you're gonna see more Bitcoin adoption by by businesses um, as a treasury asset for sure for payments in certain parts of the world more than others um, I don't think that the dollar or the or the euro are gonna disappear that quickly. Um, I know a lot of the sort of Bitcoin conspiracy theorists that are always like, oh yeah, the dollar's collapsing, the dollar's collapsing. I mean, yeah, it's collapsing in value, but it's not gonna disappear. Um, I don't think we are going to outlive the US dollar. We may outlive the euro, but even there, I wouldn't be too sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Bitcoin is also gonna get integrated in the traditional financial industry, um, probably more as an investment product. 
but uh, but Joel made a good point earlier that banks may adopt Bitcoin and start to you know build their own products on Bitcoin. Um, if if the the CBDCs don't really work out in banks' favor, that could also happen. Although I think the banks will be in cahoots with the central banks when it comes to CBDCs, just because their lobby is so strong. But um, yeah, I think that's how I, how I envision it in the future. Like layer one is going to be expensive to transact on, so layer two, layer three solutions, um, <clears throat> more products and services on Bitcoin, also stuff like Bitcoin DeFi, um, whether that's going to go the same way as it did on, on other chains, that it's really shaky. In 10 years, it's probably not going to be robust yet. If you have DeFi stuff on, on Lightning, um, that's probably going to take a bit longer. But having sort of financial products and services running on Bitcoin that actually work, that are robust, that don't get hacked every three months, I think that's going to come as well. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting. The, the, the building on Bitcoin stuff is interesting. I mean, a lot of, of Bitcoin, especially like the, the, the sort of sound money maximalists, they only really care about Bitcoin being money. And that's the most important thing. And that is the most important thing. Like they're right. But like I'm more of a realist than an idealist. I like to live in the real world. And, you know, apparently people care about all this like Web3 and NFT stuff. So if this stuff is going to come to Bitcoin, that's going to be good for Bitcoin most likely, um, but better if it happens on layer two and, and layer three. So, so having DeFi on Bitcoin absolutely makes sense. Just needs to be built because it will be on a much more robust um, infrastructure than if it runs on, on like Ethereum or something. Um, so, so I think that could be good, but it would probably go through the same growing pains as, as DeFi did on, on other chains until it becomes like robust enough so that you know, everyday, everyday individuals can use it and what's really important for, for Bitcoin adoption in general, and that's going to be important for, for Bitcoin to succeed, is the whole UX, UI situation. Like the user experience of Bitcoin, is, like Bitcoin is not user friendly. Um, like the whole like alphanumerical, <clears throat> like setting up a wallet and then doing the, the seed phrase with the recovery stuff, the fact that you can't do like a password, email password reset, like we're used to, or like you can do it on an online broker. That's already an issue. Um, sending Bitcoin with like the alphanumerical address, having to copy and paste it in. And then like you have to decide on the fees. And sometimes it takes five minutes. Sometimes it takes like 20 minutes or half an hour. Like that's not very user friendly. Um, I would say about half of the Bitcoin wallets, are just the UI and the UX is rubbish. Like people need to do a bit better on the, just visually make it more visually appealing. Like neobanks are pretty good with that. Revolut is maybe not the best example because the app is pretty complicated, but, <clears throat> but some, of the, some of the neobanks are doing a good job there. Um, so I think the, the UX and UI of Bitcoin just have to become much more user-friendly and, and less sort of techy and complicated for, for Bitcoin mass adoption to, to take place. And there are, there are companies working on that um, but overall, as an industry, you have to pay more attention to that. And I guess, generally speaking, as well, if we hit gold's market cap, I mean, look at what, gold hap what happened with gold. Uh, the creation of paper gold was one of the conclusions out of essentially having run out of uh, real gold. And I think we'll see the same thing with Bitcoin. But then at the end of the day, this goes against a lot of the maxi stances out there. It's inevitable that you will have a custodial banking partner, maybe, who offers 
Bitcoin accounts to like mom and pop shops around the corner. Uh, funny enough, my brother and I, I've been teaching him lightning and how it works. Like if we pay ourselves back coffee, which granted I pay more coffee than he does, um, I he pays me in Bitcoin and I pay him in lightning tips. So it's inevitable that we have to make some sacrifice i think in like the the super ideal version of having to hold bitcoin but having said that this turns a possible 50 to 100 million market as it is now into a trillion dollar market with users real world users uh and if that doesn't excite you like i think you're in the wrong place in the bitcoin landscape yeah i yeah. agree i agree i think we we will have to make some concessions it's, I mean, it's an ongoing discussion, even with the custodial versus non-custodial wallets, because setting up uh, uh, a custodial wallet, that's where you can do like the email and password reset thing usually. It's much easier and you take the responsibility away from the user and, and, and you know, the company takes care of it. So I'm sure that there are a lot of beginners out there who would appreciate that and it may even be better for them. But where, but there the question is, you know, do you want to go and like, quite aggressively teach people and, and force people to use non-custodial wallets. Because with a lot of the wallets, when you download them, the first thing is like, you can't even access it if you haven't mm. uh, noted down the seed phrase, and then you have to type it in again, and you can't screenshot it, or they send you like a little warning pop-up, which is good, but then like that kind of really messes with the onboarding experience, right? So yeah, it's, it's tricky. I mean, maybe <clears throat> maybe the way forward is to offer like to give the client, like the customer, the choice. I don't know. Um, and with with large with large Bitcoin investors, uh, whether it's the corporations or, or even SMEs and stuff, like should they be holding their Bitcoin? Like you know, the the treasury guy has like a treasure there or something, yeah. or should they be holding it with like Coinbase custody? It's tricky. You know, like large institutions prefer. I mean, first of all, for regulatory reasons, they need a qualified custodian to hold their assets, same with stocks and bonds. But also, they prefer to have someone they can sue if things go wrong. Um, yeah. And if, you know, some guy just runs off with a treasure uh, and, uh, you know, go, go chills in some place with uh, no extradition laws. So. Yeah, it's always funny if I see the uh, self-custodian maxis praising sailor. I'm like, but most of like micro strategies and possibly sailors net worth in Bitcoin lies with like a Coinbase uh, high net worth individual account, probably. Uh, again, like you said, for regulatory reasons, they are publicly traded company. Sailor is under a lot of scrutiny as the chairman now, back in the days as the CEO. So there's a lot of stuff to think about again in the real world that um, means we still have a lot of work to do then, Alex. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. But you make a good point. There is probably um, there's probably a trade-off that, that we have to make to push adoption forward. And, and those people that really kind of swallow the orange pill, um, they, they're going to do their homework. They're going to go non-custodial mm. anyway. I mean, when I, when I orange pill people give, send them their first Bitcoin, set up a wallet, always make sure it's a non-custodial wallet. I explained to them, like, your money is gone if you lose your, your backup. Um, and as you can imagine, some people, like, they, you know, accidentally deleted their wallet or their phone, they, like, they lost their phone or whatever, and then they didn't write down their backup properly or didn't remember it, mm -hmm. you know? Just, it happens. And it's, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a gift to, uh, it's a donation to everyone else, essentially, who holds Bitcoin, which is nice, but... Yeah, it's it's not ideal. Like the the wallet backup mechanisms also have to have to get better. 
that's mm. that's yeah that's important but if you look at like you know all those people that came into not necessarily bitcoin but all these like nft people that came in in, in uh, 2021 like uh, not even like like the, the artists and creators and stuff. Let's just leave all the like hardline scammers aside. But a lot of these people that like bought an NFT so they can put it on their social media or some creators that they fall for like phishing scams or don't back up their wallets. Like all these NFT hacks, it was, it was pretty clear. It was people that are using this technology for the first time and, and they're not techie people. They're not finance. I mean, there you don't even need to be a finance person. You need to be just a little bit techie. But there you saw it like self-custody brings a lot of risk um to people at the same time if you do get hacked you know you learn quicker right yeah you're gonna touch the hot stove before uh doing the same shit again have, have you guys ever had any of your bitcoin wallets or or exchange accounts hacked no mm, maybe one exchange account in a sense that they fell victim to a phishing scam internally mm -hmm. but i mean you're fucking dumb if you have your bitcoin on an exchange anyway so like <laughs> uh, let me tell you my story of how dumb I was. Um, so I only thought got, got, it, it was a nice segue into my story, Joel. Thank you. Um, I, I had on on a on exchange that no longer exists. Um, I wasn't using it much. Like I didn't have any Bitcoin on there. But many years ago, on like an old finance blog that I had, I had like an article about Bitcoin. It was something like how to make money with Bitcoin or something. And had the referral link to that um, that marketplace on there, so I never checked it because I didn't have anything on there. Whenever I needed to go on there to trade, like Bitcoin for fiat, I would just do it, then take the money out. That was it, right? Mm -hmm. But then, because that was like 2017, uh, and I started getting money in from referral fees, there was like a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin on that account. And when I went to check in after a few months because I wanted to do a transaction, I went through like the transaction history and the withdrawal history. And someone went in every day and withdrew like a little bit of Bitcoin that came in or like every few days. Oh, and no. for years, I had no idea. I had no idea how that was possible. Because like, I'm not an idiot. I don't click on phishing mails, you know? Right. And one day, my brother-in-law, who's sort of a leading cybersecurity expert in Austria, he messaged me and was like, hey, is this and this your password? And I was like, what? Because <laughs> he was like, what? I mean, and I said to him, like, I haven't used this password in a long time, um, but I used to use it. And that's when it clicked that I used this password on some other Bitcoin exchange that got hacked um, because I think they saved the passwords in, in plain text. And then someone just found it on a database with my email address and went to all the Bitcoin exchanges. And on that one, on that marketplace, it worked. And I didn't have 2FA because, you know, I'm an idiot. Uh, or at least I was. And that's how they took money. I mean, it was something like $300 worth of Bitcoin in total. So it wasn't the end of the world. But I was just so freaked out because I was like, how was this possible? And it was like two or three years later that I found out. So, yeah, don't, don't use old passwords. Don't reuse any passwords. Um, yeah. Use 2FA, but not the one with the SMS, but like the other options. If possible, use user hardware key or whatever they're called. <laughs> yeah. That you have to physically plug in. Yeah. Not not because of because of SIM jacking, you have to watch out with the SMS yeah. uh, back to authentication. But yeah, that's that's the only time I really I got hacked. Like I'm pretty I, I get like a good like dozen phishing mails every day 
Mm. Um, that's I think that's pretty standard when you work in Bitcoin for a while. Um, I also get those. Do you ever get those sextortion emails? No. Oh, I have to Which say, ones? they're hilarious. Where they're like, "Oh, I filmed you through the camera while you were doing something, while you were watching pornography, and here's my <laughs> Bitcoin wallet address and send me Bitcoin, or I'll send you know the video." Out. And I'm like, you know, like, if anyone if I anyone sent me an email like that, I'd be like, "Do you know what? Post it. I don't care." <laughs> <laughs> Or you would send him some sats to support his course. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, mate. Brilliant. Alex, before we wrap up um, our conversation, is there anything you wanted to um, mention before we go? Any last words? No, I, I, I really enjoyed this chat with you. Um, I think it's awesome what you guys... We enjoyed it too. I've, uh, I've listened to a few of your episodes uh, already. Um, I like the format, like having people tell their, their rabbit hole stories. I think it's really interesting, um, especially, I also like that you have a mix of people, like you've, you've had some, some big names, but then you've also had people that aren't that known, sort of, who aren't sort of big Bitcoin influencers. So I think that's really cool. Also getting to know other people like that. So yeah, um, thanks for, for having me on as a guest. And, You're uh, welcome. Yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll come again at some point in the future. Have more You're always, always welcome. Of hacks and uh, and other shenanigans and, and Bitcoin <laughs> I bought and didn't hold many years ago. So so yeah. So thanks for having me. Thank you for being on.